Hello, this is Jennifer Sanfilippo, and you've joined us on Genderator. This is my inaugural podcast. I'm very excited, and I'm equally excited to have my dear friend, Tom Schneider, join me for this episode. Welcome, Tom. Good morning, Jennifer, and I'm honored to be your inaugural uh, um, um, podcast guest. Thank you. Tom is a dear friend of mine and a former colleague in the financial industry. He is the president and CEO of Pathfinder Bank and has been for 18 years. Uh, Pathfinder Bank is a local regional bank in the central New York area, uh, chartered in 1859. So at this point, it's my stewardship over the last 18 years I was given the opportunity at a very young age of 39, which I thought I was very ready for. But as I look back now, 18 years later, I know what I didn't know. And I'm sure in 10 years, I'll know what I didn't know now. So that's interesting that you reflect on at 39. At the time, of course, you thought you were ready but in hindsight, not. And it brings up an interesting point, which is actually completely off the original topic I was going to ask you about. But it made me think of the fact that as leaders are looking to advance women into leadership positions, mm-hmm. um, there's sort of this 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 chasm between women get to upper management, but they can't seem to jump the chasm yeah. into more senior leadership positions. Yeah. And some of the some of the things that we hear, some of the um, feedback from leaders is, you know, they're they're not ready. They need to do X, Y, and Z. They don't want to take the risk, and and women end up working, you know, one and a half more positions. As, as compared to their male peers, they tend to be in that position three three years longer than their male peers because of this sort of risk. Did you think at 39 somebody put their faith in you and, and took a chance with you? Well, if your question is, if I was in the same place at the same time and I was a woman, I would not have gotten the job. And... I wouldn't have said that at the time. And the difference in my learn over the years has been looking back at the belief systems that we're raised into, whether that's you know in family or community or in the business world, and challenging those belief systems to separate the myth from the reality. And what I've discovered is that there's a lot of truths and there's a lot of myths. And I think one of the myths is that the structure is set up as equal opportunity for those that pursue it, and that there is no inherent bias. And I think that's what we want to believe as white men. And I don't blame anyone for what's happened. I think it's mostly unconscious and unintentional, there's clearly some element of conscious and intentional. And then there's just time in the workplace since World War II for women to have established themselves. But, and we can carry this on further more conversationally, self-selection exists. And it exists either consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally. And it makes us 
weaker rather than stronger. And I could talk to you about you know, my concepts of where risk management and banking um, meets our abilities in both the workplace and society. And that is, in risk management, concentration is a weakness, diversification is a strength. If you translate that over, diversity is a strength because it gives us a greater perspective on the customers and the constituents that we're serving. We have to represent the constituents we serve in leadership or we're going to be less effective. And that's, you know, borne out in, you know, return on equity in organizations that have greater representation that's gender balanced. Where do you think, you know, again, back to that whole risk and what are you actually risking? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the, with the hashtag Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, there had been uh, headline after headline. I think I told you I took a year and I just started collecting all the headlines that referenced either sexual harassment, gender harassment, pay gap, anything that, that sort of further marginalized women in the workplace. And by the end of the year, I had a document of 27 pages filled with you know headline after headline. It was pretty remarkable. And if you put a price tag on that, you know it's it's millions probably into the billions of dollars that companies have had to pay out for uh, equitable treatment for uh, harassment lawsuits so I, I wonder sometimes who we're really taking a risk on so when we speak in terms of risk when you're going to you know weigh who you want to advance and what your what your what your C-suite looks like, what your management team looks like. Is that ever, has it been in your experience that that's ever a factor in weighing risk in advancing someone? No. I, in that, you know, we haven't looked at the risk of the objectification of women as part of um, a risk metric in terms of achieving leadership balance that perhaps would lower that risk. It's a it's an excellent point that I've never thought of before, and so I'll take away that learn today. Um, you know what I see, what I see, is one has to look back on themselves. Honestly, I entered the workforce in 1983. I think that there are a lot of belief systems that were part of that learn. And some of it is just how the capitalist system is supposed to work. Some of it I go to the concept of self-interest that's embedded within open free market economy by Adam Smith. I think there are a lot of misinterpretations that took place in the 80s. And we need to, as a species and as a society, be evolving Uh, because if we go back you know, 100 years or 500 years, you know, that objectification was built into the system. We have to evolve our way out of it in terms of making sure that, you know, equality is truly there. But the way I look at it is all of those things represent disrespect. And for a workforce to be engaged, for a workforce to be aligned, I would tell you that 
you know, neurological studies in workforce development clearly indicates that when you have alignment of purpose, that when you have people working in what they feel is a safe, secure environment, and they feel valued in all the ways that value can be expressed, the brain kicks off higher levels of oxytocin. That's, you know, the, the studies are statistically relevant and a, and a higher level of oxytocin in your workforce makes for a workforce that interfaces with your customer base and with each other in a much more productive way. And so we have to think about respect, compassion, care as part of how we manage. And you can't do that in an environment where disrespect is taking place at the gender level. Can you um, share with me where, in your own personal experience, you've seen uh, the, uh, a more um, unproductive environment because it's absent those values, and then how you're leading your company to, to, yeah. to make change? Yeah. Let me first, you know, I never like to sit anywhere and, and say, you know, I know things and I'm pure and not guilty. I am guilty. That is, you know, I was raised in a system that there are things that if I look back at, you know, what I would do and perceive at 40 and 45, I wouldn't be proud of today. So my learn is partly my own actions that I find were based upon a flawed belief system of how one should manage. And that is this, and it's a, you know, it, it's learned in the schoolyards in elementary school. Men, boys, know when to push each other. They know when to support each other. They know when to back off. They know when to push forward. But what I've really found in the unproductive environments is the insecure managers push out tough and the secure push out care and compassion. And so when I see people pushing out the tough and leading in a way that creates anxiety or fear in the workplace, that is very detrimental to productivity. And it's happening. It's happening today. It happens in my workplace. And it's inordinately hard, I find, to change patterns and behaviors that have built up over 30, 35 years of work experience. And there's a certain, you know, element of, you know, young men that, you know, want to show their capabilities by showing that they're tough as opposed to, you know, compassionate <laughs> or caring or empathetic. And so we're wrong in terms of what we think works in leadership. So it, it's really about kind of getting, actually I use this term, because I don't want to say that I'm secure. I'd like to say I'm secure in my insecurities at this point. <laughs> and it's recognizing those insecurities and, and being able to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to let that dictate me. But I see a lot of that. I see, you know, guys pushing stuff out. I see women as they ascend into leadership feeling that they need to emulate that when they really need, at the end of the day, all of us as leaders 
our best when we're genuine and when people can trust us. But do you think that women emulate the tough pushing out because they feel like that's what's expected oh. and that's how they get heard and that's how you know they get stuff done? With, look, every individual is different. But if I was to look at it collectively, absolutely. There is, you know, a perception that they need to. You could see it in the profile pictures of, you know, sort of the arms crossed, head tilted, tougher stand as opposed to open and embracing. Mm -hmm. Because it's a learn that this is, you know, as women, and I, I, I can't speak from that lens, need to do in order to gain the respect and credibility of their male colleagues and those above them that are, are in the leadership position. And I think that men do the same thing. And it's detrimental to really what leadership is. Leadership is having people follow you out of love for who you are, not out of, I'm afraid to not do it for them. And so in order to do that, you have to be open to allowing people to see your own vulnerabilities and be the genuine you. Um, I went into a, one of my first management positions and went to somebody else and said, you know, who I thought was really good and said, you know, how did you get here? And then I went back and tried to do that and soon found out that, you know, they said, what happened to you? Who are you now? I wasn't being me. I wasn't being genuine. You can't lead. People think disingenuous works. I used to have an expression, and it said, management is getting people to do what you want them to do while they think it's their idea. That is stupid, that is arrogant, and it's disingenuous. I want people to do what we're trying to accomplish because we have a shared purpose, we have a shared vision in where we're going, and they feel that they're part of the system, that they're brought into the system, that we're having a positive impact in what we do. And I think as we particularly look at the next generation, I don't see this millennials, I don't, I don't even like demographic, I feel those kind of broad-based categories. I don't see the challenge in that group as you know, disaffected and too engaged in technology. I see a group of young men and women, I have the privilege to teach at, at SUNY Oswego in, in the business school in an adjunct way, and I've been doing that for 10 years. I see people who want to align with organizations, whether as consumers or as employees, that they feel they're having a positive impact. Corporate America needs to understand and accept this and move their business model from the idea that they have one constituent to serve, which is a shareholder, to we have multiple constituents to serve. True economic value is created when you deliver a product or service to a customer that's willing to pay you more than it costs you to produce it. That's the only time value is created. That's done through your employee base. And that's done through an alignment of vision at leadership. And that vision has to be inclusive of those being able to look up and say, I admire 
what's above. I believe in what's above. I will follow that. And leadership often itself is followership. You're aligning yourselves with those things that advance community, that advance society. So going back to the self-interest concept of you know Adam Smith's capitalist model, based upon we act better within our own self-interest, self-interest is not me. Self-interest for me means I'm interested in the outcomes of my family, I'm interested in the outcomes of my community, I'm interested in the outcomes of my society, and the economics of it is that you create a sustainable model. Because right now we're not creating a sustainable model because there are too many people left out. And history is prologue. Every time there are too many people left out in the advancement of society, those people change it. So, Tom, how are things going at Pathfinder? And how have you been able to create a more inclusive environment? Challenging. Challenging because the structure is, you know, set up in a way that we didn't have enough bank strength that was balanced to the population that we're serving. And I perpetuated this. I didn't solve it. It exists because I was in leadership. So therefore, what am I going to do about it now? So what I think now is that where we are is a result of conscious, unconscious, intentional, unintentional. There's some element of all of that within you know, the structure that we have today, which does not have enough representation and doesn't have the bank strength. I have a senior leadership group that has five males. I have a board of nine independent directors with eight males. Only conscious, intentional efforts as part of your strategic plan forward, as part of your succession plan forward, can change it. It will not change without conscious intentionalism. So have you created a strategy to further diversify your senior levels? Yeah, uh, yes. In terms of just embedding, you know, diversity. Actually, um, let, let me turn yeah. the question a little bit and ask, okay. have you brought in, like, it sounds like you struggle with this by yourself. Have you brought in other people to help you develop a strategy that uh, is provable, workable, and has worked in other sort of mid-sized companies? No. <laughs> no, that sounds that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, you, you um, mean you don't you yes don't want no. to ask for directions? Yes. It, <laughs> no, of course not. I'm a, I'm a guy. I got to figure out my. No. It's a, it's an excellent point. I do have the, the 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 woman that joined our board has a great deal of experience in this, and she's highly thought of, and you know she you know runs most of. Um, National Grid in New York State mm-hmm. is a very high-level um, executive whose experience is in community engagement and is in diversity inclusion, and so she's the chair of our planning committee. Embedded within our planning committee is a element of diversity and inclusion. So as we moved from Oswego, a small city, 40 miles north of Syracuse, into a more, into a you know, larger urban metropolitan area of the city of Syracuse, we are right now uh, creating an advisory um, council 
um, of members of the community. And that'll be heavily weighted um, based upon uh, gender and color to create a bank strength for both you know, board positions in the future, but more importantly, to advise us about how, if we really want to achieve intentional inclusion, how do we do it? What do you think instead of what do I think? Mm -hmm. So I haven't done it on the professional level. I would trying to do it on the you know, community, community level. leadership level. That sounds like that takes a long time. It will. It will. If I have been in the position, if I've been in the workforce for 35 years, and I've been in my position for 18 years, I will tell you that I have spent 30 of them perpetuating myth and, you know, um, then 13 of them in leadership perpetuating myth and only within the last five years based upon a number of things um, including, you know, our responsibility in the financial crisis, uh, the response I saw to that and the political environment today I see a society fracturing as opposed to evolving. So it will be a long solve, but it won't solve if you are not creating specific intentional strategy to solve it. Mm. So um, I hear two things actually that on a, playing the numbers game on paper, um, that's going to take a little while, and as you bring the community in to be part of that. But there's also the culture of the organization that you're creating here, mm -hmm. and it's really a strong, inclusion-minded culture that um, invites even the, the numbers game. So, you know, I, I walk in, in this bank branch here. We're, we're sitting in downtown Syracuse, and I see people of color, and I see women, and I see um, how uh, uh, integrated completely in this office that it is as far as comfort levels and professional levels and, and their contributions to what's happening here and in the community. So it's a, a good... Um, representation of what you're trying to accomplish. You know, if you don't have a strong culture of inclusion and inclusion-minded people, no matter what you do on a target basis, that's going to fall apart. So you it, it looks like you've you're 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 growing a foundation here of a strong culture. I, I am very confident in our future being the correct culture. I really want it to be a business model that does this. Here's where I really see a challenge in corporate America. But I'm going to come back to the idea that it's still hard for us right now because at my most senior levels, it's harder to change mindset. And it's not as though, you know, they don't want to do this. It is that there's a cost associated with it that then reflects in our numbers, that then looks like we're producing lower returns in the current period, mm -hmm. and that's part of this whole cycle of quarterly earnings, shareholder satisfaction 
But you see, we're not really satisfying the shareholder. It's the fund managers out there who have proxy votes of shares and who are driven by quarterly benchmarks, which drive whether or not money flows into or out of their funds, that are causing us to take a very short-term view of what value looks like. It is part of why we are broken within the capital system. And then we have to look at creating longer-term franchise value in a sustainable business model and a sustainable economy and stop worrying about quarterly earnings versus looking at trends and heading in the right direction and building long-term value. Who are we serving? And I think that we serve the greater economy by creating long-term sustainable value as opposed to short-term stock appreciation. We have a responsibility to appreciate franchise value that inures to the benefit of the shareholder. So all of this is to say, in order to change the mindset of how we actively create a more diversified leadership structure, I think we have to understand what our business model is forward. And then I think when we create that more diversified leadership structure, the things that I'm talking about now will be much more easily understood in the boardroom because I think it's where... Well, that's something that takes a long time also. Like you're talking about 2050. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these, these, these the, you know, you, yeah. you make a lot of sense, of course. You, you, you make excellent points on what's happening in the marketplace and what the perceptions are yeah. and what the, yeah. what the you know, uh, standard sort of business yeah. mind thinking is. Yeah. But you run a bank. Yeah. Um, you are the leader. Right. You have some really good ideas, yeah. and you know some yes. of the so, things that so let, let. that I um, am suggesting, mm-hmm. like you know, sort of picking up the pace, bringing yeah. in an outside source, yeah. um, and putting hard timelines, yeah. not hard targets. I mean, that's something you would have to. You know your own business. Yeah. What are we actually doing within the organization? I have a succession plan that's you know broad based. I have identified. Um, women within the organization who I think can um, ascend to leadership because of their innate capabilities and so we say you know I've I spend personal time with them to try to talk about you know what they want to achieve and we want to actively intentionally create those opportunities we can't just say the cream will rise to the top anymore um, because I know what the cream looks like. And it's not intentional as much as it is comfort level of self-selection and the elimination of bias relative to family raising. What do you mean about comfort level of self-selection? You said that earlier and I'm not sure I understand that. Somebody walks into me for an interview. They look like me. They sound like me. They come from the same background as me. I feel more comfortable in the selection. Somebody walks in the door and doesn't 
look like me. I might not understand their, you know, familial issues, and I might think, you know, hey, that, you know, that's going to get in the way. Mm-hmm. Instead of my responsibility to say, how do I help that individual succeed while also fulfilling their responsibilities as a mother? I have a lot of young mothers in our organization, and I have not solved yet for daycare for them. I have to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even just, you know, there's, there's nursing going on within the workplace, and I don't have private setting to do that in. We have to take specific action to make sure that rearing family, and, and clearly, you know, men are taking a more active role in that, but raising family and being able to work is rebalanced to the need. And why? Because then you're valuing that workforce. And if you value that workforce, their loyalty to you produces greater results. They'll be with you forever. They'll want to achieve what you want to achieve because you showed them that respect. So we have family as one of our values. But it doesn't mean that we want to be a family. It means that we want to respect family. Everybody has to balance, you know, work and life. And I have a, you know, we are at the total population base. We have probably 70% are female. And the workforce is between the ages, you know, average ages of 23 and 40. You know, we have, you know, you know we have a new birth <laughs> in the organization, you know, uh, once a month. And how are we helping them to balance after, you know, family medical leave and making sure that, you know, things don't happen during that period that then they feel you know, they got behind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just a greater responsibility, particularly, you know, as, you know, women take a more active role in early, you know, feeding care. How are you spreading that responsibility out? Because you keep saying we have the responsibility, and I know these we, are things that you think about, we, but we are how in, do you... We are in the early discourse. In our senior management team, we put on the table solve for child care. Mm-hmm. We have to. Now, me, I think that's us, you know, creating it. But then I have a diverse branch network. Right. And how many, you know, child care centers can I set up? So I think having um, a, um, a, uh, a, I don't want to use the term subsidization, but it's the only way I can come up with, of the cost. Mm-hmm you know, a way for us to help them solve for childcare individually and help bear the cost of that as part of the overall benefit system. And that would then apply to, you know, men who've just had children. Um, you know, how do we help them create childcare so that they can be active members of the workforce? How do we help them to work from home without, you know, losing the sense of culture that takes place when people work together each day mm-hmm. um, and are interfacing. Our business model is based a lot on 
local interaction and community engagement. So, you know, a, a, a workforce that's just working from home doesn't accomplish that. But still, we have to create, you know, pathways where the young mothers are not being disaffected by, you know, their desire to have family relative to the career path and the desires in which they're seeking to attain. So I wish, I thought, like this 20 years ago, because then we'd be where we needed to be today. But we're not. I, um, I opened up my paper the other day and I saw this headline in the Wall Street Journal in the B section, Under Armour Ends Strip Club Perk. And of course, I, I thought, as I'm sure maybe many people thought, oh, I didn't know there was such a thing as a strip club perk. But actually, in, in, in all honesty, what I am aware of is, uh, you know, corporate cards, entertainment budgets, um, uh, you know, travel, all the sort of soft perks that are not even perks, I, I shouldn't say, because a lot of it's business development. So this Under Armour and strip club perk, really, it's just you're not allowed to use your corporate card to go to strip clubs anymore. Um, but it is 2018. I, I think I'm, I'm a little surprised that that that. But, you know, I guess I should, nothing should surprise me anymore. It, what I want to know from you, Tom, is we talk about women being able to advance and needing to be in front of the right people, needing to be in the room, needing to be in the right conversations. And what I think is becoming more and more evident is that the right room is the room where women aren't really often invited to like the strip club, like the golf tournament, There's, like, yeah. you know. And, and those are all um, legacy business development um, techniques that still exist today. And um, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, when I entered the workforce, again, in the, you know, mid-'80s, um, most, and this was in Manhattan, um, you know, most of us were having cocktails at lunch mm -hmm. and then going back to work and being completely productive. I can't imagine doing that now. <laughs> you know, a, I, 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 wouldn't, I know I wouldn't be as productive, but it would be a horrible part of the culture and horrible example to set. So, you know, time and circumstances change, but a lot of this stuff gets changed because it's called out in the press mm -hmm. and then you're facing the embarrassment of what it is as opposed to let's reevaluate what we do, why we do it, and does it work for everyone and does it work for the, you know, opportunity to create a diverse leadership force because a diverse leadership force will create a better company. It has to for two reasons. One is those people that you serve as consumers or you know, business to business, other businesses want to see back what they look like. And two, you're just getting a diversification of viewpoints that allows you to be less myopic of looking through the same lens. The stuff you're talking about, you know, is the learned behaviors of boys in the schoolyard, and that doesn't really change later. 
those are where the rules, are, you know, in corporate America come from, you know, you know how we interface. And we're not doing it with the girls. They're in the other part of the, of the schoolyard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you have to look at it um, differently now. But uh, let me bring it down to a, a simpler level. One that we faced in terms of I have a commercial lender, I have a number of commercial lenders who are women, and a customer who's a male, they're both, you know, mid-30s, and having dinner with your customer is, you know, a, a practical thing to do. Yet, his wife's uncomfortable with it. <laughs> And, you know, he expresses that and says, you know, I, you know what do I do? How, how do I do this? I, when I started to identify women in leadership, wanted to, like I do with the young men in the organization, have a lunch or have a dinner with them and talk about, you know, who they are and what they want. But when I am out to dinner with, you know, one of my younger vice presidents who's a woman, there's a community perception that's different than if I'm with a man. And it bothered me. I talked to my chairman about it, and he said, well, you should really take one of each at the same time. But I, I don't, I, that's unfair. And that's a, a tough one to overcome, particularly for a young woman in business development in the organization serving, you know, a small business that's run by a man. And I'm not sure I know what that solve is yet. Right, right. Because it it's really perception over reality. Right. How do you how do you find an equity there? Because you don't want to stop the business development. Yeah. You know, he uh, this gentleman, what is his name? Kevin Plank at uh, Under Armour you know, okay, so you stop taking clients to strip clubs. How do you make up for the lost time that when you go to a strip club, you know that the message to your to your female mm -hmm. management is you're not allowed here. Yeah. You know, we don't want you here. Yeah. First thing, when you're faced with something that then becomes public that looks like it's inherently wrong, but, you know, it was just, it's just part of, common practice is to verbalize it, is to accept it and verbalize it and acknowledge that this is a perpetuation of a system that no longer works. And I know that we over-apologize in this world at this point sometimes, again, we're apologizing only when we get caught. <laughs> so I don't want to do it as an apology, I want to do it as a recognition of my lack of understanding that the world is changing mm -hmm. and that, you know, I need to take an active role in that change. I took, a, you know, I asked for a complete list of our compensation and then I did a side by, I asked our human resources vice president, who's a woman, to do a side by side, same position and women, I had inequity. I'm trying to solve that inequity. You had inequity. Inequity. Yes, the women were being underpaid relative to the men 
which means that I was part of a system that biased. So am I apologizing for that? I could do that. We're all on apology tours. I don't think that that's the best way in leadership. The best way in leadership is to acknowledge that I was there when that happened. I was in the leadership position when that happened. I didn't know consciously that it was happening, but that's not an excuse. My responsibility is to make sure that it doesn't happen forward, is to fix the imbalance and then create systems and structure to make sure through checks and balances, through our culture, that it doesn't repeat. So you closed the gap? Sure, yeah. I had to. I, you know, I was embarrassed of myself. You know, <laughs> I, I like to say this. I like to hope that I believe this. Um, when I look in the mirror in the morning, that's the person I have the highest expectations for. That's the person who disappoints me the most. Um, so if something in my organization that I have been the president and CEO for 18 years isn't right. I did it. It's my responsibility. It's my responsibility to accept the error and it's my responsibility to fix it. This is what does create the dialogue. And if we're not engaging in the dialogue, we're never going to get to solve. And we should always be trying to identify you know, where we are versus where we want to be, simple gap analysis, and through dialogue turned into action, solve. Thank you, Tom, so much for joining. It was a lot of good information. You're doing wonderful things here at Pathfinder. Thank you for um, saying that. Thank you for um, the privilege of, of asking me to do this, and I'm grateful, and I don't yet acknowledge that I'm doing wonderful things. Um, there's a, a, a hill to climb, and we're climbing. This is Jennifer Sanfilippo, and you've been listening to Genderator. Join the conversation by visiting my website at genderator.com, that's Genderator with a J, and post your comments, thoughts, and questions. I look forward to hearing from you.